You might know ADP as the biggest name in payroll, but that's just the beginning. Because ADP is transforming the way great work gets done. With HR, talent, time, benefits, and payroll. Informed by data and designed for people. That's ADP. Always designing for people. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. The appeal of Mayor Pete, as in Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of uh, South Bend, Indiana, who on Monday formally announced his run for the Democratic presidential nomination. Does he really have a chance, and what is his message? Plus, Democrats in Donald Trump's bar over comments about uh, 9-11 by Representative Ilhan Omar. Is this part of Trump's re-election strategy? Welcome. I'm Paul Gigo with The Wall Street Journal, here to talk about... Uh, these intriguing political subjects is my colleague, William McGurn. Hello, Bill. Hi, Paul. And Kim Strassel. Kim, how are you? Hi, Paul. Okay, so let's talk about Mayor Pete's big rollout speech. We wouldn't talk about a South Bend, Indiana mayor, but the 37-year-old Boot Edge Edge, military veteran, uh, a Harvard graduate, uh, Rhodes Scholar as, as well, um, son of the heartland, a gay candidate uh, whose husband is a social media star. He cuts a very intriguing political figure here in the year 2019. Kim, what do you make of his announcement speech, which uh, I have uh, looked at and uh, has strikes me as there's a lot uh, uh, appealing there in terms of his rhetoric and his message that is uh, somewhat Obama-esque in its, uh, that is Obama circa 2008 campaign. We talked about bringing people together, unification, uh, let's not divide America, uh, optimism. Yeah, you just took the name out of my mouth. I was going to say I listened to that speech and then I read it again and it had Obama all over it. So he's running as this youthful optimist. Uh, he actually did use the words hope and change many times throughout that speech, not in the fashion Obama necessarily did. Uh, but there was a lot of, as you said, rhetoric about uh, America as a great place. He talked about his uh, father immigrating to this country, the opportunity here. Um, and yet, um, it was a very dark speech in its own way, uh, which also why, made me why, think why of Obama. Do you, why do you say that? That's interesting. Well, because he laid out, in my mind, a, a, a whole number of supposedly horrific social ills um, that the country has failed to address uh, and, and needs to take care of. You know, uh, climate change, supposedly, we're all uh, – this is the greatest threat that the world has ever faced. No one's ever doing anything about it. We live in a country where capitalism lets people down, where people aren't even allowed to sue their credit card companies where the Electoral College overrules the real winners of races, where Citizens United gives all the power to the wealthy. And, and these are a lot of straw men that have become uh, – big fixtures in very progressive rhetoric. And I think that's the takeaway, Paul, is that this is a, a very progressive candidate. He's right up there with Bernie Sanders, right up there with Elizabeth Warren. While he's not been as specific, his mindset is certainly that. Um, but he's just doing a much better job of dressing it up in, in the hoped and optimism theme. Yeah, I, I agree with Kim. Look, that 
that's sort of what it has to be. All the Democrats so far are competing to, for the progressive label, right? So they're, they're, and what distinguishes them is just personal biography. Um, he's a very attractive figure as a veteran and so forth. But when you look at his, uh, as Kim says, when you look at what he's for, um, he's, you know, abolishing the Electoral College, Green New, it's indistinguishable from Kamala Harris. Well, but it, the, the, the appeal that he makes, though, is rhetorical. He is not getting, he's not doing what uh, Elizabeth Warren is doing, right. which is to lay out A, B, C, D, E, F, G proposals to rein in capitalism. He's not running like Bernie Sanders is on a signature issue like Medicare for All and making making that um, the centerpiece of his campaign. He says he's selling a narrative. He's selling a biography wrapped in a narrative about America and American possibility. And he's using his gayness and his husband as centerpieces of that narrative. And his argument seems to be, I need to win... Uh, the, the, the the narrative about where America is, and then we'll fill in the blanks on policy later. And he's giving himself some flexibility in what those policies are. You know, he talks about climate change aspirationally, but doesn't endorse the Green New Deal necessarily. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> now, he might get there. I'm just I, saying right th- now there's there's a lot of blank space right. there on well, specific policy. I think you're policy. right on the identity. And I think if you compare him to... Uh, Barack Obama. Barack Obama's identity was going to be first African-American to be elected president. As a journal editorial pointed out, I think he's making a miscalculation there. Um, His identity as a gay man, uh, he would get the support of people because of that identity. His opportunity was to reach out beyond that in a non-threatening way. Instead, he's he's going after, you know, Mike Pence, uh, who's never said an unkind word about him. So I think he's made a miscalculation because he's he's got those votes from the identity part i think the way to differentiate himself would be to reach out as as barack obama did i mean we can talk about how he governed but he ran as purple america and middle of the road and i'm not threatening supporter of traditional marriage i mean the barack obama who ran in 2008 was very different from the barack obama who governed what do you what do you make um kim of his rise so far, Buttigieg, because you would not have expected him to be doing as well in his fundraising as he has, in his media attention as he has, as he has, and in his uh, rising in the polls, he's now moved. He's not at the top. Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden are still there, but he's moved past in many polls. Elizabeth Warren. He's up there with Kamala Harris in in the top tier of Democratic uh, candidates. Yeah, and he not only has risen above them in the polls, but we just have now seen the first quarter fundraising numbers as well, too. And he had a, a really pretty amazing for a, a quarter for a guy who is was barely known and for a guy who most people still can't say his last name. Including um, me. He, <laughs> including me. He, he pulled in $7 million in the first quarter, which was better than uh, a lot of other more known candidates um, and moreover spent hardly any of it which means he's got a lot of money in the bank um, and so this is this is all good I think it, it comes to what you're talking about Paul it's it's the appeal right uh, young he cuts a very good figure uh, and also the cleverness of these sweeping themes without policy specifics. If you look at some of the trouble that the other Democratic candidates have run into here or there, it's because they've 
put themselves down on record either uh, in the past. You look at someone like Kirsten Gillibrand, who uh, declared herself in terms of issues of, for instance, like firearms or uh, other questions. Um put themselves down on positions that the left has now come back and said, you're not pure enough for us. Uh, but Buttigieg has been really smart in that he hasn't got into any of those specifics. Um, one other thing that really struck out to me in his speech, which I think he's doing differently than anybody else out there and which he can do because of his relative youth. He's only 37. He spent a fair amount of his speech trying to appeal in particular to under 40 voters and doing so by suggesting that that entire generation uh, somehow lives in an era with new problems that take a new mentality to govern. And he mentioned specifically school shootings, um, post 9-11 conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq, climate change. Um, he actually had a quote there, which I wrote down. This is a rare moment between whole eras in the life of our nation. And Buttigieg is, he's presenting himself as the, the tonic uh, to the problems that face that, that whole new era. Hold that generational thought. We're talking about Pete Buttigieg's appeal, and uh, we'll talk about the, sp- spar- the sparring between uh, Representative Ilan Omar and Donald Trump. And you're listening to Potomac Watch from the Wall Street Journal. You might know ADP as the biggest name in payroll, but that's just the beginning. Because ADP is transforming the way great work gets done. With HR talent, time, benefits, and payroll. Informed by data and designed for people. That's ADP. Always designing for people. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. I'm Paul Gigo with um, Bill McGurn and uh, Kim Strassel, and we're talking about uh, Pete Buttigieg. And Kim had made an intriguing point about the generation appeal, generational appeal of Pete Buttigieg at age 37. This is uh, not a new strategy in American politics. We often have candidates who say, I'm a new voice for a new generation. And uh, that uh, that's a big part of his appeal, and it's fascinating as the because within the Democratic uh, primary, you have uh, essentially um, Donald Trump era Democrats leading the pack: Bernie Sanders, right. <laughs> Joe Biden, all white men. <laughs> yeah, and then and then right below that, you've got uh, Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. I mean, Kamala Harris is in her fifties, I think. Uh, but uh, you know she is clearly a Gen Xer uh, uh, and uh, or a little older. In fact, she may even be a boomer. I can't remember exactly. But um, Elizabeth Warren is is also a, a boomer. There may be a lane there for 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 him to carve that out, Bill. Yeah, and I think Kim made the point in his appeal. Part of this appeal is aspirational to the millennials and so forth, but part of it is also being very vague. I mean, I don't think we can get a conversation on Mayor Pete without talking about South Bend. I'm not one who thinks... You, 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 you live there. I'm not one who dismisses uh, the idea of mayors running for office. They do have some... But, uh, you know, the touted economic miracle, I mean, the crime rate is like double the average. The The poverty rate is very high. He's done a few things, but I would I would bet that the improvement we've seen has had a lot more to do with three Republican governors in a row in their reforms uh, than it has to do with uh, with the mayor. And this is a big thing, how he's run this this city. So you think that'll be litigated in the Democratic At, so, at some point, the, I, if you're a mayor and you're running on your executive experience, 
I think this has to be uh, be a factor in the crime, and uh, and I'm, I'm just not I'm not sure. You know, the um, descendant of one of the Studebakers now has a blog, and uh, it turns out like the descenders descendants of many capitalists. He's a Bernie Sanders socialist. This is the Stude, old Studebaker oh, Stude, plant where, where Pete Boudet Edge made his launched his, launched his speech. It right. was shut down years ago. Right. It was shut down before Boudet was born. But <laughs> right. in South Bend, they still uh, talk about it. Anyway, this this man attacks him um, and his record. And I, I'm just not sure it holds up all that well. If you're running as a mayor, presumably your town should see some real improvement. I think there has been improvement, but I would bet it has a lot more to do with with the um, the Republicans down in office. Also, if you measure South Bend against anything else near it, the next town, Mishawaka, the county, St. Joseph's County, or the state of the, it's 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 below average on on all the on income levels and so forth. And uh, the two things that keep it afloat are Notre Dame, uh, which is expanding, and the hospital that they have. All right. Thank you. Both is interesting. We'll uh, have a lot of time to talk about uh, Pete Boudet Edge as the uh, campaign goes on. Let's move to uh, the (laughs) spats between Representative Ilhan Omar and and Donald Trump. Um, Representative Omar was reported to have given a speech to CARE, the Muslim uh, uh, organization, um, that in which she said to the something to the effect, essentially, that somebody said did something, um, someone did something on 9-11 without making specific reference to terrorists. And the representative from uh, uh, Minnesota, Ilhan Omar, uh, was criticized for that first by somebody who attended it and then picked up by Dan Crenshaw, a Republican congressman, in a tweet and then inevitably made its way to Donald Trump, who attacked, who, who, who highlighted those remarks in a, next to a video on Twitter where showing the, the terrible events of 9-11, including the towers falling and the planes going into the, the towers. And um, the, then this has, Kim, just sort of um, moved on where now Nancy Pelosi says that was a threat against her, li- her life. Um, it has, it, 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 she now needs more protection from the Capitol Hill police, Re- Representative Omar does. And every single Democratic candidate in the field is now defending her and against Donald Trump. I wonder, how does the politics of this play out? Is Trump happy with this debate? Well, I don't know if it's necessarily great for Democrats to be defending Ilhan Omar, uh, who has put herself out as a definitely a radical in her party. She's getting a lot of attention for what has come across frequently as anti-Semitic rhetoric uh, to the point where even Democrats in her own party have felt the need to ask her to tone down. She obviously was the subject of this non-resolution, which was passed in the, in the House a while back, which was started out as a criticism of her and anti-Semitic rhetoric and ended up being a broad uh, declaration against any kind of hate speech, as it were. But I mean, to the extent that she is getting a lot of criticism or potentially using death threats, it's in part because she puts herself out there so much. Should Donald Trump have engaged on this? It seems to me the White House is very keen to define Democrats. Um, and the president has certainly seized on some of these members of the more progressive caucus and their rhetoric as a means of, of trying to say, look, uh, 
Jewish Americans, Democrats don't represent you anymore. This is where the party is going. But when you get very personal, as he did with one person, uh, that that carries with it a little bit more risks and opens it up to attacks that, you know, to the claim from Democrats that he is going after a minority woman. Yeah, Bill, uh, I think I think Trump wants this debate. I think he loves it. And uh, he doubled down uh, here on Tuesday saying, look, uh, uh, I'm not going to apologize for attacking her. For, you know, he said I didn't mean to attack her personally, but I'm not I, I don't mean I'm not. Uh, she was disgraceful uh, in her words and uh, which I think is a little unfair to her. I don't know that Ilan Omar actually said anything. That was really all that offensive in that particular, about, in that particular incident about 9-11. But she does have a track record, and, of course, that comment played into, into that. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I would go further. I think it's, it's, I think it's not just that Donald Trump likes this. He likes engaging. Um, it may be a very rational decision. If you go back to the 2016 <clears throat> election, this was a battle between negatives. Um, it turned out that Donald Trump won because people just – couldn't abide the idea of Hillary Clinton as president more than they couldn't abide the idea of Donald Trump, and she won the popular vote. So now you have, what do you have now? His, his negatives haven't really moved, right? They're kind of stuck roughly. Not improving. Not improving, right? So, and, and they worry that he's maybe alienated some Republican women at the margins and so forth. So what does he do? Um, most people would say, okay, stop the tweets and, um, you know, be a kinder, gentler Donald Trump. And I think, one, it's not his nature. He's not going to do that. And two, I think they may calculate, as you say, not just like this, that I won last time by polarizing the debate. And if I'm going to win, if I'm going to have a chance, it's not going to be because people who used to oppose me now say, oh, he's a kindly, lovable guy. (laughs) It's because they hate the other person more. So I think he loves these socialism debates. I think he loves the uh, debates over Israel um, and all these things that uh, the Green New Deal. I think he loves all this stuff. And I I would say, to me, I just wonder what the Democratic Convention is going to be. You know, especially what you mentioned, um, Congresswoman Omar. If you remember the the Obama convention when they started booing Israel and the position of moving the the capital uh, to Jerusalem, I think Barack Obama had sufficient clout and prestige to shut it down, right, which he did pretty quickly. I believe Hillary Clinton could have shut that down too, similar prestige. I'm not sure there's anyone in this field that has that kind of prestige to shut it down. Also, I'm not sure that anyone may feel quite as strongly. So, I mean, it's fascinating to me uh, that the major Democratic candidates have all defended Ilhan Omar, Kim. I mean, they, they, they have all basically must have felt obliged to do so as they seek the nomination because, you know, there is some downside here uh, of associating with her, with her views uh, uh, on Israel and on uh, Islamic terror in general. Which Nancy Pelosi certainly understands, um, and it's notable that she has remained a lot more neutral on this question than other people. In fact, she came under a bunch of criticism from liberals uh, this week for not more vociferously defending Ilhan Omar against the president. Um, I think her initial response when the president sent out his tweet was to say, you know, 
no one should be using 9-11 for political purposes. Some on the left actually saw that as almost an implicit criticism of Omar as well as the president. Now, she has come out and obviously been a little bit more forceful, but you know she recognizes uh, that this wing of her caucus is potentially problematic to the party and its reelection bid. And she said as much. She was asked about this and because she had made another comment recently about how in an interview about how the more liberal members like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez um, and Ilhan Omar represent, oh, five people in her party. Um, and this was viewed as very dismissive by the liberal wing. And she said, look, let's we got to face the reality, OK? Uh, she held up a glass of water. She goes, if this was out in my district and it had a D after its name, it could get elected. But uh, in terms of our last electoral victory in the midterms, these were really middle of the road seats. Um, and we need to rally around those ideas that uh, work for the most Americans. Now, this isn't winning in her any plaudits, but she's also right. And it it really highlights the degree to which the Democratic candidates are, are nonetheless uh, ignoring that advice and are going very far left. Presumably, they're hopeful that at some point, the ultimate nominee can move back into the center of the lane somewhat. But that that's getting harder to do. And I think it's interesting interesting to note that separately from the Democratic presidential candidates who have identified themselves, defended Omar, uh, you have House uh, Democrats in the House, including the head of the Democratic Campaign Committee uh, from Illinois, I forget her name now, but uh, uh, who have, remain, have maintained a studious silence throughout this. They have not identified themselves with Omar or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or uh, this the, this group of uh, of Democrats, because I think for precisely the reason you mentioned, Kim, they're going to win in their districts again, and as freshmen, they're going to be targeted by the Republicans uh, before they develop a, a stature within their uh, district that makes them harder to beat, and um, they don't want to be identified with this this wing of the party uh, clearly. And many of them have taken seats away from Republicans in more moderate districts. So, again, it's, it's amazing how different the world today from when Connor Lamb won in Pennsylvania. Remember, he was the— That was in 2017, 2017, right? and how he was going to be the future of the moderate um, sort of Democrat, which I think is key to their victory. I mean, the reason that Nancy Pelosi is speaker is because of these— um, more moderate Democrats that won in these formerly Republican districts. And I think that's all put in jeopardy, and I think that's why these people are silent. They're also a minority in their party, so they don't want the wrath of God coming down. Well, this is what happens when you have a, um, when you win a majority uh, with picking up 40, 41 <laughs> se- 40 seats, uh, you, uh, it tends to be a little more raucous crowd. Kim? Yeah, you know, the, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee head who you mentioned, Sherry Bustos. Sherry Bustos, uh, she's that's from, right. Uh, Thank yeah. you. Um, not only have <clears throat> they been quiet on some of these controversies, but they've actually taken a stand. Um, just recently, for instance, the DCCC announced that it was not going to hire any 
private political vendors that provide services to Democratic primary challengers. And this is a shot across the bow at the AOCs and others who, remember, were threatening to come up with a blacklist of those moderate members, were threatening to fund challengers to them and, and run them out of the party. And this was Sherry Bustos and co saying, look, we need to u- unite around our current candidates and not delve into a civil war here. But I don't think this is over yet. All right. Thank you, Kim. Thank you, Bill. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Potomac Watch.